Hi, and welcome back to the Enterprising Expat. Just a quick note, I was having a shit technology day when I recorded this episode and my computer and Skype conspired against me. So you might hear a bit of a scratching noise in some of the audio. It's not enough to be irritating. Um, but just to give you a heads up that it that it's there, my apologies, but please don't let it stop you from enjoying this episode. You're listening to The Enterprising Expat, stories of women who packed up their lives and moved abroad for love, a job, or a fresh start. What does it take to build a new life and business in a new country? What does it take to go from finding your feet to thriving? Find out how each woman did it. Be inspired, whether you're an expat or digital nomad, to bloom where you're planted. Hi, and welcome back to The Enterprising Expat. This week, I am speaking to Katie, who's a polyglot, a word wrangler, and an animal lover. She takes us through her journey that at the moment has her in Spain. So sit back and enjoy this episode and take notes on the little gems she drops along the way about what she's learned and how she became an enterprising expat. Okay, so hi, Introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do. Um, hi, so I'm Katie Uniak. I am a freelance translator and copywriter. Um, I translate from Spanish and Portuguese to English. And I mostly work with sustainable travel brands, marketing, um, write and translate a lot of blogs. Yeah, that's pretty much my day to day. Let's just dig into that a little bit. So the sustainability angle, is that something that you are, you know, you're, I'd hate the word passionate, but is that something that you, you follow and that you live by? Yes. So I generally try to be as eco-friendly as possible. Um, I've recently committed to flying, not never flying again, but flying as little as, as physically possible. I'm vegan. I've been vegan for about four years, I think now. But yeah, I was kind of under the impression that just being vegan was enough. It kind of reducing my carbon footprint enough for me to not have to, I could still fly around the world quite happily <laughs> um, without feeling guilty because I'm vegan. But then I realized actually it doesn't work like that. So yeah, I've committed to that. And I live in a cave house in the south of Spain, which doesn't require any heating or cooling. So that's a big um, saving on carbon emissions. <laughs> you can't just put it out there that you live in a cave house and then yes, just... I know, yeah. <laughs> so, so explain about the, the, yeah, the cave and the house and, and how it works, because it's, it's kind of a unique situation. It is. Um, so I just found it on a normal like, rental site when I was looking to move in on my own. Um, but Granada, I live in, in Granada in the south of Spain, and there are a lot of caves around here because of, it's very hilly, mountainous terrain, and it, just the type of rock means that it's very easy to dig caves into it. So none of the caves that people live in are natural. They've all been dug out over the centuries. Um, my landlord thinks this one's probably about 200 years old. And it's just, it's just one space. It's probably about four meters tall in the center, and it's a um, a friend of mine described it as a, a womb-like space. It's all <laughs> rounded. There are no straight lines. <laughs> um, and 
yeah, the basically the heat that the sun bakes into the earth over the summer uh, is just stored in the earth and it gradually release it, releases it over the winter. Um, and then in the summer, it stays lovely and cool as well. So it averages about 17 degrees centigrade in the cave between that and about 22 degrees centigrade. So, yeah, really pleasant temperature, even when it's zero degrees outside or 40 degrees outside. Wow. That, yeah. that is so cool how it's like nature kind of looks after us, you know. That's so cool. And, uh, and it's very tranquil. It's very, um, there's something about being within the earth that's kind of, I don't know, you're protected by it. The really lovely way to play to uh, play to kind of get away from it all and so like if you close the door the outside world just doesn't exist tell me yeah. about how your affinity for language got started was it just in high school was it um so my parents were always very good about encouraging us we traveled a lot so um lots of exposure to other cultures and they also we had au pairs from various countries in europe when we were small so we were always kind of quite aware of the rest of the world and then I really French at school you know so so the teachers are always um have a big effect on that but then I started Spanish at high school in high school and I loved the teacher and I just found it a lot easier than French I think yes. the spelling is yes. a big thing <laughs> and the grammar is just a bit more straightforward and just found that yeah I had quite a knack for it and then when I was 18 I went to Barcelona for a summer as an au pair myself and just loved the challenge of living in another language day to day it kind of adds I don't know I've always felt like it, it adds an extra spice or a bit of interest just to day-to-day -day life if that day-to-day -day life is in another language and you're having to constantly think about how you know you ask for your loaf of bread at the bakery or whatever it is so that's when I decided to study Spanish and Portuguese at university so yeah it just kind of evolved quite naturally but my parents really laid the groundwork when I was young but that's cool I wonder if it's a misconception and tell me if it is that I hmm people from the UK are not really known for learning another language or another language or is that sort of old-fashioned it's more I know we all do it in school yeah, yeah but I I people from the continent are you know they speak two languages from like primary school and in the UK it's like something you have to do in high school it doesn't seem to be to matter to them that much or maybe that was just me and my friends no a hundred percent um there was never really a push for us to learn languages and in general I mean, my friends from school, I think very few of them speak another language. Obviously, I am. Um, I then went to university and studied with Barcelona people that speak another language. So my kind of friendship, the people that I know don't really reflect, I think, the general attitude in the UK. But no, I think we still have the real concept that well, everyone speaks English, so it's yes. fine. And to some extent, that is true you can pretty much get around in most corners of the world with English and we're really fortunate to for that our mother tongue happens to be that language it's a fluke of history 
Um, but, you know, I just try and instill in people that how much more you could get out of that travel experience if you did speak the language, or at least some of it. I, um, I agree. Yeah. Okay, so university, and then I think you had your first work experience. What word? Remind me again. You went to... Yes, that was my third year of university. Okay. Uh, so as part of the languages course, we had to go to a Portuguese-speaking country to work or study. So I went to work in Brazil. Wow. And then what yeah. were you doing? Like, I, I, I'm wondering, like, how of these little building blocks eventually got you to being a translator. Yeah. So tell me about Brazil. Tell me about how it felt different than being in the UK. You know how each country just feels mm. different. How did Brazil feel different to you? Well, I was only 21, so I, everything was quite overwhelming and new anyway. Um, and I also had what I had a good grasp of Portuguese grammar from university, but Portuguese that they teach you at, in classes compared to the Portuguese that Brazilians actually speak has nothing to do with one another. They're completely different languages because the Brazilians have kind of invented their own easier version of the language. Nice. Um, but so, yeah, that was a, quite a big shock to try to adapt to the language. But I was in a very tropical region of the country. I was um, in a little town called Bonito, which means Bonito, which means beautiful, mm -hmm. um, which is not too far in Brazilian terms from the border with Paraguay and um, Bolivia. Mm -hmm. And it's just a very tropical, um, you know, winter was one week long and um, it just rained <laughs> for a bit. And it yeah so really high temperatures very yeah tropical lifestyle um all the fruit there's just mango trees everywhere and so it just felt very different to the UK even in you know that feeling in the air when you're in a tropical country that sensation of this the humidity which I love that kind of you feel like you're blanketed by it yes Yes, I love humidity. It really doesn't yeah. bother me. My husband hates <laughs> it. I'm like, no, this isn't bad. What do you have the aircon on for? This isn't bad. Yeah. So then what were you doing in Brazil? Like, what was the work experience? Um, it was an internship uh, with this organization called ISEC. And uh, that they normally work with like marketing or English teaching, but they happen to have this one in tourism. And so I was working at this, like tourist park which was just out of the town which offered horse riding to tourists and then snorkeling in the river and also boya cross which is tubing oh. um so there were waterfalls so you would float on these rubber rings and go down waterfalls and rapids and i talked my way out of working in reception and into being a guide on the tubing tours so your language skills were already good enough for you to convince people that, no, I need to be shooting down the waterfalls. Yeah, yeah. I think when it came to that conversation, I pulled that all stop. Um, but it was incredible. The water, is, the water in that area is famous for being some of the clearest river water in the world. So like, if in the, even if the water was three meters deep, your tube would like be perfectly the shadow would be perfectly there floating along the bed of the river. And yeah, just incredible wildlife and birds. There was a, um, 
a tame wild boar. Well, she wasn't tame when she arrived, but she lost her family, turned up at the park, and she made like decided that we were her friends and that was her home. And she would come and do the tubing um, trip with us. <laughs> she, would, she would swim and she would go down the waterfall. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> because I would just run if I saw a wild boar. I would just run. Very small. <laughs> yeah. Very small. I'm one of nature's cowards. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes, that, that doesn't happen every day. <laughs> okay. Uh, the so, tourists, when they arrived at the park, the people that had come to do the they would always be like, what is going on? I'd be like, well, it's just a wild boar. It's totally normal. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So then that's your gap year. Um, okay. That was my yeah, year out of university. Oh, right. Yes. That's your final year, like yeah. your internship, like work experience. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So then you go back, you graduate. And then was there... I, I know, I mean, you were at school with people studying the same thing, but before you went on to study languages, was there ever like a discussion, I don't know, from other family or friends that you went to school with, like, you you need to study something more solid. What are you going to do with languages? Um, well, I think we're lucky in the UK in the sense that people do generally just in a lot of cases, go to university and study whatever, and you can then get a job that really has nothing to do with it. Like yes. people go and study history or English literature, and in another country, that would be right. So you're going to teach English literature. Yeah. But in the UK, it's very much you go to university to learn how to be a functioning independent adult. Yes. And how to work as a team, and you know, meet a deadline, and all of these things so very much I think the focus is more on transferable skills so I think everyone was just you know it's, it was the expected thing to go to university yeah so everyone was happy that I was going to a decent university to study something and nobody really reminded too much what it was so then graduation you what happens then? Because I did you walk into a job? Was there a period of just, I don't know what I'm going to do? Uh, well, luckily, before the whole, I don't know what I'm going to do, quarter life crisis thing uh, sunk in, <laughs> I got an email in like the April of my final year um, saying that there were places available in Mexico. So it was one of those quite serendipitous things uh, that, you just get an email into your inbox and you know that that's what you're going to be doing from now on. Um, it was an email about this teaching, English teaching placement at a university in the small town of Colima on the west coast of Mexico, um, which, yeah, they were looking for somebody to fill this spot to be a conversation, to help with conversation classes, essentially, that would be starting in the October, and this was the April. And I just, kind of knew from the second I got that email that that was what I was going to be doing. Right, I'm going to Mexico. Can we dispel some myths about Mexico? Because I want to visit. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm just like, if, if, I can, if I can live in South Africa, I can jolly well visit Mexico. Yeah. I get that there are good and bad places. What did you love about Mexico and why would you encourage people to go? I adore Mexico for the people so many reasons um 
the food is a massive one. It, there's nothing quite like a freshly handmade corn tortilla. And in general, I mean, I am vegetarian, so it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. But I still manage to, manage to have an amazing time. The variety of it, I mean, you go from Mexico City, which is huge and crazy, but still has got a lot to recommend it, to, you know, the tiniest fishing villages on the these beautiful coastlines to, like, mountain villages and just then the, like, the dry desert of Baja California mm. and the wildlife, amazing, and the volcanoes. I had a view of an active volcano from my bedroom window. The avocados, the mangoes, the, <laughs> the again, the tropical. Uh, yeah, I'm a very <laughs> a tropical girl. Yeah, I'm like, you're just attracted to the heat, right? This is your happy place. Yeah, when yeah. it really is. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so then how do you get to Spain? What are the steps that happen to get you to Spain? You know, working as a translator, talk me through that. So in my final year of university, I uh, started doing a bit of copywriting for my cousins who own a copywriting agency, and they were kind enough to send a bit of work my way. And I remember sitting at my laptop one day writing an article just thinking, this is amazing. I'm getting paid to sit here and write, which I love to do. Then I realized that I started looking elsewhere online for work, kind of the general content mill sites like Upwork and Fiverr, mm-hmm. and um, realized that I could also offer translation because I'd been doing translation classes as part of my degree. And I found that I had a real knack for it because at the end of the day, to be a good translator, you need to be a good writer, especially for more creative translations. So I started doing that as just kind of get a bit of extra income during my final year at university. And then when I got this job in Mexico, I was only working at the university 12 hours a week. So I had all this free time. And I think I would have gone slightly mad if it weren't for the fact that I was focusing uh, all my energies into actually turning the freelancing thing into a reality. And also I could afford to be accepting pretty low rates because I was in Mexico and life is incredibly cheap especially where I was, I think it's the cheapest state in the whole country. And so I, whilst I was living there, this lovely girl from Granada, where I'm living now in Spain, came out for her year semester abroad in Colima, and she moved into my flat, and we got on like a house on fire. And she then, when she was talking about Granada, I'd been here on holiday a couple of years beforehand and absolutely loved it. And I'd been thinking that I would, you know, seeing as the freelancing thing was going well and I was earning enough money that I thought I could actually make a go of it and support myself in Europe with a higher cost of living, um, that I wanted somewhere closer to home so that people could come and visit me and that I felt a bit more connected with my family and friends, but didn't want to be in England. So when she said Granada, I was just like, what? that's where I'm going um so yeah I moved home for six months and moved back in with my parents and um saved a lot of money and worked really hard on building the business up and then moved out here in January 2018 okay okay so I want to go back to freelancing Mm -hmm. because I think we all 
dabbled on Upwork when we learned about working online. <sighs> Where do I start? So <laughs> what were some of the mistakes you made when you were getting into freelance work? Definitely accepting the incredibly low rates that I accepted. Obviously, I could justify it because I was in Mexico and the amount of money I was earning was still something that I have money. But when I actually think about what it, how much it was and the amount of work involved with a lot of that, I, um, yeah, it amazed me that I did it. But I also, I loved it and I was in the very privileged position that I wasn't relying on it as my sole source of income because of this teaching job. So I kind of, I don't recommend that other people, you know, get into the race to the bottom and um, compete on who, who can do it for the lowest price. But I just happened to be in that situation that it was okay for me to do that. And that was my route in to gain clients and gain experience. But yeah, I wouldn't recommend that other people do the same because um, it was very specific. I'm not sure what I would say to somebody who's just starting out. Um, I'm not sure what other options are are open to them. It's it's kind of a balancing act when you're cutting your teeth. So then, how did you you grow past that? What what happened for you to say, okay, this is now my business, and I refuse to take a rate lower than X? I, it was moving back to the UK mm. and you know, walking into a pub and realizing how much a glass of wine cost and being yes. like, oh, right. <laughs> um, but also the the ambition of having this goal of wanting to come to Spain mm. um, meant that I didn't have a choice, that I had to start earning a reasonable amount of money so that I wouldn't be knocking on my parents' doors a couple of months later saying, sorry, spent all my money, freelancing thing didn't work out. So that's a good motivator. Yeah, yeah. And then have you, are you marketing yourself as a freelancer or are you a solo business owner? What is the wording that you're using? Yeah, freelancer, um, always. I kind of, I also focus on the whole location independent aspect because of the, I'm, a lot of my work is in the travel niche. So that does appeal to to a certain client but yeah I I definitely would always call myself a freelancer at the moment potentially in the future also because I work under my own name rather than under a business name so I think that kind of affects whether you um think of yourself as a freelancer or, or a business owner fair enough so when you're now building your your brand and putting yourself forward for I don't know bigger and bigger jobs was it about gaining confidence to put yourself forward for bigger jobs or have you always been certain of your skill set and just gone after it? What was that progression like, I guess, is what I'm asking. It was very much a growing in confidence, um, going from one job to the next, you know, slightly going in with a slightly higher quote, seeing if they accepted it and just little by little because, yeah, I don't know how... I really respect people that um, can just turn up on day one and be like, this is what I'm worth, this is happening, and I'm going to pitch these huge clients. 
I it's definitely been a growing process, a learning process, and just gradually saying goodbye to the to the imposter syndrome little mm. by little. Things like you know, creating a lovely looking website, and um, I then had my branding professionally designed last year, and that was a really big. I was already doing pretty well with the whole no imposter syndrome thing, but yeah. that was a really key moment of being like, wow, I'm actually, yes. I'm actually doing this. I am an adult and I am a business owner. And this is serious. It's not something I'm playing at. Yeah, I think it's been a slow, a slow process, but I think I'm doing pretty well with it now. Did you have to bootstrap <laughs> things in the beginning or were you always just of the mind that you wanted it to look a certain way and then, you know, you were going to pay for it and then just see what happens? No, 100% bootstrap to begin with. Yeah, it was spent hours doing battle with WordPress and various themes and attempting to make it look vaguely professional. Um, I didn't spend any serious money until probably the beginning of 2019. Yeah. so, yeah, it took me a long time to also, that you know, you get to a certain point where you have savings built up and mm. you're actually in a financial position to do so. Um, but, yeah, I only started investing when I actually had a kind of a nice cushion behind me. And But then it has paid off massively making those investments that I've made. So uh, I probably should have started a little, a little sooner. What were some of the skills that you had to teach yourself that have now moved your business forward? Mainly things to do with SEO and the technicalities behind search engine optimization, keywords, and just having a, a gaining a basic understanding of digital marketing. Because obviously, content writing is so um, is so intertwined with that. So that has been a something that I've just taught myself through podcasts and uh, articles to begin with. And then I did a course on that last year, which was really helpful. I've got um, a whole hard drive full of courses that I need to get to. When, <laughs> when, when you're weighing up the viability of courses, um, what criteria are you using? Because um, a lot of people have a lot of courses and I think it depends where you are on the journey. Um, you know, and that will that will inform what you choose. So, how were you weighing up one course against another? My approach has always been very focused on the person themselves, mm-hmm. um, the person that's offering it, that you know their years of expertise, and just that they're likable and that they're out there on social media. Not, I try to go with people that clearly don't take themselves too seriously yeah that kind of can you know I'm I if I see the whole earn a thousand k in the month thing mm. I just can't can't be dealing with that at all um <laughs> so yeah kind of genuine people are what sell to me um so I've tried to learn from that as well in then how I'm presenting myself to clients um because, yeah, especially when you're passing with a significant amount of money for a course, you want to know that this person really is who they say they are and just that you're going to enjoy watching hours of video with their face 
and have to go home. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that is a factor. And then, mm-hmm. um, since you're living in Spain, are you and you 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 work remotely most of the time? How did you yeah. start building a community that you can get advice from, or get support from, or get leads from? How did you start developing that? Well, community kind of work community is most professional community mm-hmm. is mostly online. Um, Twitter is a massive thing for me. I've probably been using it probably for about two or three years, and there's a lovely community of especially um, British copywriters on there um, who are very supportive and encouraging, and that's kind of a really nice virtual space to be. And yeah, Instagram, very much social media based networking. I do meet up with like digital nomads or location independent people when they when they are here in Spain I've met up with quite a few some people that have stayed for a few months or things and it's been nice to make friends and compare notes um professionally speaking but yeah it's been a slow process the whole community thing but I think that I'm kind of have now got a nice network of people that are virtual friends yeah, yeah yeah so then what is your advice for anybody i guess you're kind of unique um yeah for anybody thinking about going the digital nomad route first that you need to be flexible you need to be willing you need to be able to get work done without having a nine-to-five set schedule every day because there's no point traveling or being in a nice place if you're going to be working during office hours every day of the week um you need to yeah I think and strong online community if you can before you go away before you head off on your travels is a is a really big thing because there are so many groups and support networks and things of so many people going through the same experience as you and that you can either connect with online or meet up with in person wherever you are um and yeah just reaching out to them who are the people that are actually going to understand your lifestyle because clearly this it's still not it's more and more the norm more and more of a normal thing to do the digital nomad thing but it's still not the norm and a lot of people still aren't going to understand what you're doing with your life or how it all works um so yeah I think having that those people that you can turn to even if it's just online is very helpful yeah do you actually do that whole expat group thing do you use any co-working spaces um I have like a few British friends here in Spain who are lovely but I do spend a lot of my time with the locals the Spanish people Mm. Um, but I find it is nice to have that little expat, you know, other people that are in the same situation as you because they can just understand what you're going through um, a lot more than somebody that's just lived in the city all their life will. You're, the specific problems you're having and be able to laugh about things with co-working spaces. I have, I was signed up for one for about three months last year, but it was a very 
like most people had been there for about four years, that they weren't digital nomad type. They were just uh, freelancers or small business owners. Got it. Um, so there were a couple of like people who were just passing through there and they were all lovely, but they were open to making friends because they needed to make friends. But most of the people that had been there for years just barely even bothered to give me the time of day because they're clearly just a bit fed up with people coming through. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it depends very much. that There are co-working spaces and co-working spaces, I think. Um, yeah. It depends if it's a more of a digital nomad focused one or uh, just a, a local business owner one. I will probably go back to co-working space at some point, but at the moment I have two adorable uh, rescue puppies in foster care so they need need my time and energy so it can't be running off to a co-working space yeah it might not go down too well um (laughs) tell me about the tools that you use each day um well i've always been a a massive fan of wonderlist and i'm very upset that they're taking it away in about in may i think they're changing it to microsoft to do and i'm just not not impressed at all because i enjoy (laughs) wonderlist a lot but other than that, I'm not one for, like, I've tried things like uh, Trello in the past and I've tried time tracking apps and I just don't seem to get on with them. It just seems like more fast to me. Um, yeah, Wonderlist or pen and paper. Um, and then translation wise, I've got a few, um, there's various bits of software that are for computer assisted translation they're called cat tools uh that are i use on a daily basis or yeah it just speeds up translation work because it remembers certain terms or if you've translated a sentence a certain way and it appears again then it just makes life an awful lot easier so that was they are quite expensive but that was a a big investment i had to make quite early on that paid for itself really very quickly okay so yeah to keep myself organized i like pen and paper i've also tried trello Mm. asana i've tried every darn thing and they just don't work for me Um, (laughs) but what about like um tracking money like in your business um do you use quickbooks um or google suites or stuff like that no i have a boyfriend who's very good with excel and has made me a very fancy excel tracking invoice tracking spreadsheet um that calculates everything nicely for me and yeah no it's brilliant it's all wonderfully color-coded and um lots of different money you know amounts broken down into lots of different sums before and after tax and um so, yeah, it's all fairly basic, really. I'm quite um, old school with my pen and paper and my Excel. Hey, if it works, it works, right? Yeah. <laughs> it works. Okay, so um, it would be really cool if you could just say your, how people can contact you and your social media links, please. Um, so you can visit my website, which is katieuniac.com uh, that's k-a-t-i-e-u-n-i-a-c-k-e and i am also on twitter with that handle katieuniac and instagram so any of the above um contact me through my website or yes 
on Twitter, Instagram, and it'd be great to connect. Fantastic. And then just last quick question. What is one thing that you always travel with from the UK? Oh, one thing I always travel with from the UK. Um, well, I have to admit to a steak bean habit. And <laughs> um, <laughs> um, luckily, baked beans are you be surprised at how many places in the world you can find them so I don't take them in my suitcase with me but yes. you can find them pretty much everywhere and um, that's literally the only thing that we stocked up on um, so yeah so one thing we stockpiled um, was seven tins of baked beans <laughs> That is fantastic. Thank you. Oh, I love it. Do they have to be Heinz baked beans? Because we were looking oh, for Heinz. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I'm prepared to make more for those in the US. Um, thank you yeah, so much, Katie. Wonderful. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Enterprising Expat. Please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and you will automatically get new episodes each time they're released. Have a super weekend. Bye.